Good morning, everybody. So glad that you are with us for worship today. How's everybody doing? Pretty good. All right. Well, that's absolutely wonderful. Well, it's a joy and a privilege for me to welcome you to worship here at Peachtree for us to get to experience the power and the presence of the risen Christ together. And so we have this golden opportunity to set aside this time to listen to God's presence in community, to be a part of His Spirit together. And we're walking through a series of messages entitled Unexpected Togetherness. We believe that the gospel always surprises us by bringing us together into fellowship in a world that's trying to tear us further and further apart. We believe that there's a certain quality of belonging that's actually at the very heart of God's good news. And in this series of messages, we began by looking at kind of the crown jewel of community in the New Testament, that early church in Jerusalem, when the Spirit comes and descends upon the church in Acts chapter 2, and it describes them in this way. It describes how they ate together, that they learned together, that they shared together, and that they prayed together. There was this constant theme of togetherness for them. And our dream, our hope, is that that wasn't just something that happened a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, but it's something that can still happen here in our time, in our place. We don't want you to just kind of publicly affiliate with Peachtree or to identify with the church. We want everybody to find a community. And so we have women's communities and men's communities and Sunday morning communities and neighborhood communities that we call red dot communities. And in these communities, we hope that we will engage in these four types of activities, that we will gather, learn, and serve, and care, and that we will always fill the empty chair. Because in Acts chapter 2, it says that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It is in the church's nature to grow, to have that outward focus, that disposition of hospitality and redemption towards those who are not with us at this moment. And so with open arms, we are walking through this series. Unexpected Togetherness for us is not just a title of a series. It is our one of our most cherished values. So you got to ask the question, how, how did that early church get that kind of community? It didn't just kind of spontaneously combust into good fellowship with one another. And that's why we're rewinding The book of Acts was written by the same person who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And so it's really Acts 1 and Acts Volume 2. And so we're rewinding to Acts Volume 1, which we call the Gospel of Luke, and going all the way back to the start of Jesus' ministry and how was he weaving and cultivating community all along the way. And we've seen some of these qualities here. We've talked about um, in our first week in the calling of the disciples on how Jesus overcame rejection by providing a safe place. These were people who had been cast aside by society, and yet Jesus gives them a place to belong. And then last week, Pastor Mark shared a message where he talked about the importance of forgiveness and how forgiveness is the hallmark of true community. And today we're going to talk about overcoming distrust with vulnerability. And we're going to jump right into Luke chapter 5. And as we jump into this passage, I want you to notice how Jesus cultivates with creating vulnerability. 
After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Let's pause right there for a moment. A tax collector would have been the Bernie Madoff of Jesus's day and age. These were some of the most hated, corrupt individuals who were stealing from the people and were in cahoots with the Roman occupying forces. And there were two different kinds of tax collectors. There were the tax collectors that took income from people as they were traveling from one place to another, kind of thinking of people who have kind of a poll tax on, on a toll road or something along those lines. And then there were the tax collectors who did the farm tax. Those resided in a particular area, and they would take some of your crops or some of your fish or whatever it is that you were harvesting or collecting. You would take that. Those were the bad kind of tax collectors. Those were the most hated ones because those are the ones who live and resided in your community, and yet they were constantly stealing from you. We know that Levi, or you might know him by his other name, Matthew, the one who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, that Levi is one of the bad types of tax collectors, and he lives in Capernaum with Peter and the other disciples who were called. And so it should astonish us when it says this next in the text, when it says, follow me, Jesus said to him. Remember, Jesus has got Peter and James and John and all of them with him. And they're like, wait, he gets the same invitation that we got? No way. Follow me, Jesus says to Levi. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. A large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. Do you notice who was at this party? The only kind of people who will come to this party are kind of the other corrupt officials, the people who were working with the Roman government and oppressing the people. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They're murmuring from the edges. They're not complaining directly to Jesus. They're complaining to his followers. And Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. May God bless not only the hearing and the receiving, but also the putting into practice the embodying, the enacting, the living out of his holy word. The first thing that Jesus does in ministry is to start a community. And the way that Jesus builds community is through vulnerability. But we've got to get something straight here right at the outset. I'm hoping that you can kind of help to clarify this with the people around you. So I want you to turn to somebody next to you and answer this question. What's the difference between transparency and vulnerability? Turn to somebody next to you and try to answer that question. Ready, set, go. Well, you can actually have transparency without vulnerability, but you can't have vulnerability without transparency. Transparency is about being honest. It's about being forthright. It's about being straightforward. Vulnerability requires a deeper investment from that. 
It requires a more personal investment. In fact, the word for vulnerable comes from the Latin, which means to wound. In other words, when you are vulnerable, you are putting yourself in a place of risk where you might get hurt. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're participating in a social science experiment and you show up at the place and they have you fill out like some information about yourself and answer some basic questions. And then you get paired up with somebody that you've never met before in your life, a complete stranger. And they put you in a room and the two of you are together and they give you a list of 36 questions that you have to answer in about the next hour or so. You have to ask those questions and you have to answer those questions and you're not allowed to skip a question and you have to walk through each and every one of them. And as you go through these questions, you notice the nature of your relationship, even though you've just met this person, start to change. In fact, one of the things that they discovered at the end of this experiment, because they asked you on the way in kind of how close you felt to some of your friends and your family, even your spouse, that on the way out that some people reported at the end of this hour with a complete stranger of asking and answering these questions, that they, require, they, require, they reported a higher level of intimacy and connection with the person that they just met than even some of them did to their spouses which probably means they need to go to marriage counseling, which is a whole other department of the psychology wing there. But nonetheless, there was something magical about these questions. And the questions came in two different buckets or in two different lists. Set A form of questions were these types of questions. What was the best best gift that you've ever received and why? Describe the last pet that you've owned. Where did you go to high school? What was your high school like? Who is your favorite actor or actress? These are interesting questions. They are questions of information. You might have to think a little bit about them, but they're not questions that are going to really challenge you. They're going to allow you to stay in your comfort zone, but amidst the 36 questions are these kinds of questions. If a crystal ball could tell you the truth about yourself, your life, the future, or anything else, what would you want to know? If there's something, is there something that you've dreamed of doing for a long time, why haven't you done it? What is the greatest accomplishment of your life? When was the last time you sing yourself or to someone else? These are questions that you would notice that as you asked them and as you answered them, that your heart rate would go up, that you would blush at times as you had to think about it and answer them. Sometimes people uh, reported kind of laughing nervously as they answered these kinds of questions. And these were the kinds of questions that created a sense of vulnerability and because of that created a sense of connection to the other person. One of the social scientists put it this way. People tend to think of vulnerability in a touchy-feely way, but that's not what's happening. It's about sending a really clear signal that you have a weakness, that you could use help. And if that behavior becomes a model for others, then you can set the insecurities aside, get back to work, and start to trust each other and help each other. If you've never had that kind of vulnerable moment, on the other hand, then people will try to cover up their weaknesses. And every little microtask becomes a place where insecurities manifest themselves. 
Think about that in the way that some of your relationships are, where you're constantly trying to manage the impressions of others. And every little micro task that you do is about keeping people further and further away. So if you don't hear anything else from me, I want you to hear this. Vulnerability is the key to intimacy. And we live in a world today where we demand transparency, but we are terrified of vulnerability. Back when I was in college, I got to the end of kind of my college tenure, and I was kind of taking stock with a mentor of mine over kind of all of my college years and getting ready to launch into the next season. And we were talking about my, uh, my dating life, my relationships. And as we were taking inventory of my dating relationships, we noticed a pattern. The pattern was that I would get started to date someone, it would go for about a certain level of depth and for a certain amount of time, and then the relationship would die. And then the same thing would happen again, and the relationship would die. And it was about the same level of depth, and it was about the same pattern over and over again. And it was one of those moments where like, well, maybe it's not them, it's me in this regards. This is where I got introduced to a term that revolutionized for me the future of relationship. It was called the principle of least interest. And what this means is, is that people have a tendency to not like each other in the same way at the same time in a relationship. And the person who holds back the most is the one who is the most in control of the relationship. One of the things that would happen that we would notice is that we would meet, there would be a certain level of interest, she would start to pursue me and I would start to back away. And then she would pursue me some more and I would get scared and I would back away of more and eventually she'd pursue me some more and then I would exit the relationship. And then we'd start that cycle over and over again. It was like, have you ever had two magnets that were facing the wrong way that were kind of pushing against one another? It's like the magnet kept pushing this way until it fell off the table. That was the history of my dating life up to that point. And what I needed to learn was to be able to flip that magnet around. And that if I was ever going to truly love, I was going to have to love that person more than I loved being in control of the relationship. Because when you become vulnerable, you lose control. But that's also how you can get close. C.S. Lewis puts it best. He says it this way, love anything and your heart will be wrung out and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable, to love is to be vulnerable. This is what we start to get to see at the beginning of these relationships of mutual risk between Jesus and his disciples, particularly Levi in this passage. They are both willing to risk to be vulnerable in order 
to get close. Levi, in following Jesus, is about to risk his wealth. Jesus is risking his reputation. Levi is risking his lifestyle. Jesus, as we will find out, is about to risk his life. Jesus is willing to be vulnerable, and Levi, whose name I've already told you is Matthew, Matthew at the end of his gospel writes, when Jesus says, when you did these things to the least of these, you did it to me. Jesus comes to earth with a posture of being vulnerable. He's willing to risk getting hurt in order to be close. It was just about 20 years ago that the superstar author J.K. Rowling wrote the first Harry Potter book, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, and that began a meteoric takeoff, unbelievable, never seen before phenomenon in literature. And so as these books took off and people read them, it not only began a series of books, but an empire of movies and of theme parks and merchandise and candy, all kinds of different things. And as J.K. Rowling wrapped up that project, she started writing something else. But this wasn't a book or a movie. She started to write a play a play that's called Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. And ironically, it's a play that picks up 20 years in its story after the end of the last Harry Potter book. And much of the play would be familiar to anybody who has seen the movies or read the book in the sense of that there's wizards and witches and it all takes place, a lot of it, through a school called Hogwarts. But there's something very different about this play. Harry Potter's no longer a teenager. He's a middle-aged man, and the, the enemy that he has to fight is not some dark wizard or lord. The evil that he's going to have to confront is more within. He's going to have to learn what it means to be a father to a teenage boy. And this will be a particular challenge for Harry because as an orphan, he did not have a father. He didn't know how to be one. Harry's used to being the hero. What does it mean to be an ordinary dad? I promise that I'm not going to ruin. There's no spoiler alert here. But there's one little interaction between Harry and his son, Albus, that I don't want you to miss. Harry says, you told me that you don't think I'm scared of anything, and that I mean, I'm actually scared of everything. I mean, I'm afraid of the dark. Did you know that? Harry Potter's afraid of the dark. I don't like small spaces, and I've never told anyone this, but I don't much like pigeons. You don't like pigeons? Nasty, pecky, dirty things, they give me the creeps. But pigeons are harmless. I know, but the thing that scares me the most, Albus Severus Potter, is being a dad to you. Because I'm operating without wires here. 
Most people at least have a dad to base themselves on and either try to be or try not to be. I've got nothing or very little. And so I'm learning, okay? And I'm going to try with everything that I've got to be a good dad to you. In order for Harry to connect with his son, Harry has to learn that it's not just about protecting, it's about connecting. And Harry is so worried about protecting his son, protecting his image, protecting his reputation, always being the strong one, always being the hero, that he doesn't realize that unless you're willing to put your guard down, to reveal, to even talk about your fears, there's no way to connect. To love is to be vulnerable. And so let me ask you, do you need to sit on the edge of a bench and have a conversation with someone where you don't have to be the strong one, you don't have to be the hero, but you're willing to be vulnerable? There's no other way to create genuine community. You have to care more about connecting than you do about protecting. Last summer, our family went on a vacation. Uh, we had never taken the children across the pond before, so we went over to Europe and we spent a day in Dublin, Ireland, and went to this building here. We were about halfway through our trip at this point, and let's just say that our family was at its highest apex of conflict. Yes, even pastors' families have fights and struggles. I, I hope I didn't burst any bubbles with that, but we're an oral family, and we go into this church, absolutely magnificent cathedral on the inside. This is St. Patrick's Cathedral in the heart of Dublin, and there is an item in this sanctuary that really sticks out. Off to the side, it's a door that looks like it's been torn off of its hinges that has a hole in the middle of it. And this door has one of those, you know, long historical markers that's next to you that describes its history. The door is from 1492, the same year that Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And it's at a time when there were these two families, basically the Hatfields and McCoys of Dublin of that age. And they are fighting with one another and there's bloodshed over which one of them is going to become the Lord of that area. And the fighting escalates. One side starts to take advantage of the other and that family that's not doing as well with the fighting retreats into the chapter house of St. Patrick's Cathedral and they close and they bar the door. They know that they're in trouble, but they sought the solace in the sanctuary of that place. Being in that sacred space, something starts to melt in the conflict between these two families. And the family that's winning on the outside says, we promise you if you come out, we will give you safe passage, we'll give you sanctuary. With all the bloodshed, the family on the inside doesn't believe it. 
Family on the outside says, you have my word, you have my promise. They still don't believe it. And so the father on the outside has a family member take an ax and cut a hole in the middle of the door. And the patriarch of that family takes his arm and he sticks it through the hole of the door. An incredible gesture, an astonishing one, because the family on the inside could have taken a sword and cut it clean off. But they don't do that. Instead, they take the hand and the conflict is over. Peace begins to reign between their families. They call this the door of reconciliation. And it says right on the historical marker, it says, this is where we get the old Irish phrase, to chance your arm, to chance your arm. What we believe in Jesus Christ is that he has taken an ax to the door of our selfishness and our sin and he has opened it up and he has taken his arm and he has stuck it into our lives and he is inviting us to reconciliation and to peace. And there's no way for him to do that, to enter into our world without becoming vulnerable. And I wonder if you are willing to take that hand, to know the great love of the Father, the only one who will be Lord not only of this church or this part of the world, but of all of life. Jesus is willing to chance his arm, to be vulnerable, to be close to you. He cares more about connecting than he does about protecting. And there's one other thing that I don't want you to miss in today's passage. And that is this, that Jesus said at the end there that he came not for the healthy, but for the sick. Not for the righteous, but for the sinners. Did you notice what Jesus didn't say in this moment, that when the, the tax collectors are there and the, the Pharisees come and the Pharisees start to complain and label and call the tax collectors sinners? Do you know that Jesus doesn't do? He doesn't say, hey, you don't get to talk to them that way. That's not who they are. Jesus doesn't do that. You know what Jesus does? He goes, yeah. Yeah, they're sick. They need help. They're unwell. They're not right. But you know what else? They're with me, Jesus is saying. I call them. They're mine. Jesus doesn't just accept them, he identifies with them. Jesus loves you as you are, 
and not as you should be, but he loves you too much to leave you the way that you are. He invites you into a relationship, this cycle of vulnerability that we call repentance. An old word that leads to reconciliation with God and with the people around you. This is his invitation when he says to follow me, that he comes to sinners and people who were unwell like you and me. And he chances his arm and he says, follow me. How will you respond? Let's pray together. Our gracious and loving Father, we pray that you will bring us together into a new kind of community, a new kind of relationship. Not just one where we're honest with one another and forthright, but where we become vulnerable. Thank you, God, that you were willing to risk to make a personal investment in the cross and in your ministry to trust us, to be close to us, even to be wounded for our sake. Lord, in the midst of all the different questions of this world, help us to ask and to answer the right kinds of questions, to not just settle for shallowness, to not just demand transparency, but to be willing to take those risks, even of leaving things behind, to love you and to love others more than we love control. And so instead of God, the principle of least interest, may it be the work of most love. May it be that greater love that has no one than this than to lay down a life for a friend. Thank you, God, that you came not only to be transparent, to tell us the truth, but you came to love, to be vulnerable, to come to us, the least of these. And so, God, help us to receive your invitation, to have the kinds of conversations that we need to have as a follow-up to this message where it's not about being right or being the hero, but about chancing our arm, taking that risk, that the wound is worth it. So I pray for the marriage in this room that needs to be reconciled for the soul that's far from you that has never taken your hand. And I pray that you'll draw us close. In Jesus' name, amen.